morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, October 24th, we are studying Joshua chapter 10, verses 28 to 43. Joshua proceeds through the land of southern Canaan as the Lord gives victory over the cities there. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. Pastor Kilgo serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's good to be back. Pastor Kilgo, as we get started today, let's talk a little context. What should we know as we prepare to look at the second half of Joshua chapter 10? Well, you're you're kind of in this section where um, Joshua and the, like you just got this whole section where they're going and the Lord is sending them out to conquer all these different areas, all these Canaanite uh, cities and whatnot. And we're going to, um, I mean, we've had the very well-known text of the the Lord causing the the sun to stand still um, in order to give them the the time to go and do what He has commanded them to do, uh, but it's this larger narrative of all these conquerings, and it kind of our our text is this kind of culmination of the whole thing where the pace quickens significantly, and it's just kind of like bam, 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 bam. All these different areas are are being conquered one after another. Mm. So we're not going to get a ton of details concerning battle in this particular section. As you said, it is going to be one after the other, this city, then the next. We're going to hear names of kings and various places. This is primarily southern Canaan. We'll see more of northern Canaan in the next text. Uh, Since we won't get too many details of battle in this section, what what kinds of things should we keep in mind from the previous battles where we have seen more more detailed descriptions of the battles? What should we keep in mind as we're, we're thinking about the Israelite way of warfare in this text that isn't ex- explicitly spelled out, but what, what kind of the background information should we have as we read more summary in this text? I think one of the main things is going to be, and it's just going to be echoed throughout it, um, is kind of twofold. One, uh, the... Uh, the Lord giving the command to Joshua and the armies of Israel to go and do these things and them being faithful to that command. And then the other is that the Lord ultimately is the one doing the fighting and winning the battle on behalf of his people. Those are the kind of the two things that that's been expanded a little bit more in previous sections. Like you said, these major themes and not just here in Joshua, but in general and a lot of the battles uh, that the people of Israel fight, that the Lord sends them out to fight, you get those kind of parallel things that the Lord is sending them to be faithful to his command, and the Lord is the one who's actually accomplishing it. So we're going to see that kind of uh, 
again, in rapid succession over and over and over, just being repeated in these texts as well. All right. So the first thing, the Lord gives the command to Joshua and Joshua and the people then faithfully carry it out. And secondly, the Lord does the fighting and the winning. I especially appreciate you bringing out that first one, that the Lord gives the command and Joshua and the people carry it out. Because I, I think that that's, that's been an important thing that we've seen in the first part of Joshua as opposed to the way we often think of the people of Israel as unfaithful and grumbling in the book of Joshua, for the most part, they've been faithful to the Lord's word. They've heard what the Lord has said. They've done what the Lord has said. There was that really important thing that happened before they conquered Ai in Joshua chapter seven, the sin of Achan, in which they didn't. They saw what happens when they hear the word of the Lord and disobey it. But for the most part, they have been faithful to hear the word of the Lord, to do that word of the Lord. And there's been this sequence where the Lord speaks to Joshua, Joshua speaks to the people, and the people are faithful in carrying out the Lord's word. All of that stands behind what we're going to read in the text today. And as we see the successful conquest, as you said, in quick succession, we should keep in mind that pattern that is behind all of it, that the people are faithfully carrying out God's commands, and that's why they are receiving the victory that the Lord is winning for them. Any final comments before we jump into the text? Yeah, I was actually going to bring up Joshua 7 as well as a very good parallel to that in kind of the immediate context of Joshua 10, where you see, like you said, the the people have not been faithful to what the Lord has commanded. They kind of start to take matters into their own hands which is one of these themes that we see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament is when Israel is faithful to what the Lord commands, whether they understand the reasoning behind the command or not, then they are blessed for that. And the people broadly, even around them, are blessed for that. But when they try and take matters in their own hands or they try and uh, act as though they know better than the Lord and they are not faithful to what the Lord commands, uh, then they also don't receive what the Lord promises in connection with the commands. And, and that's just a really important general principle that you see, not just here, but again, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. That things never go well for the people when they think they know better than God. That, that goes all the way back to the very beginning, certainly continues into the book of Joshua and into our own lives today. Things do not go well for us when we think we know better than God. It is always better to hear the Lord's word, to believe it and to do it. So we pick up the text. We're in Joshua 10, beginning at verse 28 this morning. As for Makedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Magadah, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Magadah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. 
Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its kings and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with its kings, with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. That's our text for today. That's Joshua 10, verses 28 to 43. So lots of various cities here, Pastor Kogo, as you said, one king, one city after another. So I think one of the ways that we can handle this is to pick up some of the similarities that we see from each one. Now, one of the things that that starts, I guess it's really in verse 29, is you have Joshua and all Israel with him. This is one of the refrains that this is Joshua leading the people, but all Israel is with him. And of course, they're listening to the Lord and his word. Talk a little bit about Joshua and all Israel, the way that there's a, there seems to be a, a sense of they're united as they go through this conquest. Yeah. So th- this is, it, it, it strikes me as this is one of the exhortations you hear in the New Testament, for example, that like St. Paul will come along and he will exhort, for example, the uh, the Corinthians to be of one mind and one speech, that they would be united with one another in their uh, in their faith and in their confession of the faith. And, and this is always what the Lord is uh, pressing us towards as his people, that we would be united in what we believe and what we confess. And I mean, you, you see how like... In the Missouri Synod, for example, we make a uh, a connection of this with the Lord's Supper and the doctrine of closed communion. That uh, because it's the Lord's desire that we would be united together in our belief and confession, um, so also that's going to extend into our unity at the altar, and it's our desire that all of that matches up. And you see an example of that here, where you have Joshua and Israel. But again, like you said, the, the way that this is constructed, it just seems that they are just all together and their unity then is going to be founded on listening to and believing what the Lord has told them. And that's that's the same for us. Our, our unity, if it has any other source than God's word, it's going to be a unity that is on shaking ground and will eventually uh, fail but a unity that's grounded on God's word because God's word is that solid rock 
that's a unity that endures and makes it through various trials and persecutions and will last uh, into eternity, in fact. And we can rejoice that in the resurrection, we are, in fact, united in, in the same sort of way. Um, you know, I don't, it, it's not necessarily Joshua and all the people of God, but it's, you know, just all the people of God are, are there. And it's one of these pictures you see, for example, in the book of Revelation, where everybody's just together. So, yeah, you, you see this here as they're going along. Um, I think that it is a good connection to make that because they are uh, united in the hearing and believing of God's word, um, they are also united in the manner in which they're spoken of in the text, Joshua and all of Israel. Uh, thinking back earlier in the book of Joshua and even into Numbers and Deuteronomy, where you have the two and a half tribes that receive land on the other side of the Jordan River, there's a very real geographical reason that there might be disunity among the people, that they might want to just go home, forget about these other tribes on on this side of the Jordan River and just, just go back to the east side of the Jordan. And Joshua dealt with that. Moses dealt with that too before he died. And those two and a half tribes have been faithful to the Lord's word along with the other tribes, the ones that are dwelling or will dwell on the west side of the Jordan River in the promised land proper. And so I, I think, you know, you see the how the word of the Lord provides unity, even when there's a, you know, I mean, there's a river that's going to stand between two and a half tribes and then the other, what, nine and a half tribes. Those are, there's going to be a, a river standing between them. What a, what a reason potentially for there to be disunity. And yet we've already seen it in the book of Joshua and it's continuing into chapter 10 that it is the Lord and his word that do does provide that true unity. And, and eventually, and I don't know, this may be going a little bit too far, but you, you brought up the book of Revelation. Here we have Joshua and all Israel with him united. And perhaps in the book of Revelation, we could say it is, is Jesus and his whole church that is united in the Lord's word. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be a perfectly fine analogy to make. I'm certainly not opposed to uh, Jesus and his whole church being united in the blessed resurrection. Um, but yeah, so uh, you brought up the the being separated by a river. And certainly th this is a good example of if, if there's a unity that is founded on something other than God's word, say uh, geography, then there are very easy ways for that unity to be broken, both physically, like through a river, or just through uh, discontent, like, hey, that group gets to have access to the river more than we do. And so there's a covetousness that's in there and there's a discontentment that's in there and you start fighting and uh, just everything falls apart. But if you have God's word that's come along and said, this is where you belong, this is where you belong, and this is who gets to do what, then you're like, okay, well, the reason why maybe they get more access to the river is because the Lord has granted them more access to the river. And who am I to argue with that? So that that allows for these things that are kind of uh, more side issues ultimately to remain there. And the chief issue of what is the Lord actually decreed to these groups and to us to let that be the, the primary means by which we interact with each other. 
Mm, right. It's certainly Joshua and all Israel are interacting together with each other based on the Lord's word. And so they are united together as they go through this conquest of southern Canaan from one city to the next. We started with Makedah, which we mentioned in the previous text, and then move on. There's, there's a variety of cities, Libna, Lachish, let's see, uh, Eglon, Hebron, Debir, I think that's that's all of them. And then we get a, a summary. So we've we've got, you know, we're kind of coming south through the land of Canaan here into the the Negev, some of the hill country is is being talked about, these variety of cities that we have. One of the things that that happens each time is that they they fight against this city. The Lord gives the city and the king into the hand of Israel. Often we have the expression, he struck it with the edge of the sword, every person in it. No one is remaining in it. There's this idea of devoted to destruction. I suppose there's a number of ideas that we can pick up from each one. Pastor Kilgo, what, what, what would you like to start with? Well, I mean, maybe one thing is um, who's the he Right, and okay. it, and it seems and it and it seems like maybe an obvious question, but I don't know that it's as obvious as we might make it out to be. So, and the Lord, so for example, in um, uh, dealing with Makeda, uh, the Lord gave it also gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword, and he left none remaining, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. So, who's the he? Right. Well, there's there's two options because it's a third person singular. It's either the Lord or it's Joshua. Um, th- those are the the only two uh, third person singulars that are that are in the context. So who is it? And this is one of these really kind of fun things that it's well, it's both, right? So uh, the Lord ultimately is the one that is striking the the people with the edge of the sword. He is the one who's not leaving any remaining. He's the one that's uh, acting upon the king and these sort of stuff because he is the one that the Lord of all, he's in control. And you, and you see right at the very end of this whole text, this is maybe one of the, the very important things that um, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So, so the Lord's the one that's actually doing the fighting here. Um, even though you don't see it, but he's fighting through means. And, and this is something that maybe we don't think about all that often. We, we do talk very well and very importantly about the means of grace, for example, the manner in which God's grace comes to us and that God's grace doesn't just come to us like poof out of midair or something like that. It comes to us through, through means, through, through stuff that the Lord has instituted for it. In this case, through his word and through his word combined with water and bread and wine and the voice of the absolution. And so here, what's the means? Well, the means is Joshua and Israel, the, these armies coming through. So who's, who's striking Makedah with the edge of the sword? The Lord is, but he's doing it through Joshua and the armies of Israel. So you can also say that it is Joshua that is striking the uh, the people. And I think that it's important to actually hold those together as a unit because they're not acting independently of each other. Uh, you know, Jacob and the armies of Israel are not going out and doing this just because they think that Makeda is a good place to go and conquer and, uh, and destroy all the people in it. Um, neither is the Lord going along and just like, you know, 
dropping an atom bomb on these countries and letting the people of Israel watch as he as he does it. I mean, he does these like you think of like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He just rains down mm-hmm. um, fire and sulfur on on the city and destroys it. Like there's just nothing left. Uh, so he has the capacity to do this, but in in this case, and this is in fact the way that the Lord normally works when it comes to war, is the Lord uses uh, the the people in order to accomplish what He has commanded. Um, and I so I think, like I said, it's important to hold those two together. The He here in in all these sections is both uh, Joshua and the armies of Israel and the Lord Himself. Right. So, and, and the point that you made early on is that grammatically, there there are cases where the he does seem to be the Lord, and there are cases where the he seems to be Joshua. And again, I, I would say that grammatically in the sense of what's the closest antecedent to the pronoun. Some of those those gra- grammatical terms that you learned in high school English, it's good to know those. And so that in the text, sometimes that he, well, the nearest person that's named is the Lord. Sometimes the nearest person is Joshua. Sometimes I wonder if maybe the he could be standing as a, a Israel for a Israel collectively as a, you know, Israel as a nation being used as a singular perhaps occasionally. But I think in either way, theologically, the point that you're making is excellent, that this is the Lord working through Joshua and all Israel with him. And that's that's a really important thing. I think there's a number of things we can talk about. Uh, to keep it close to the text, first and foremost, when we recognize that the he who is striking with the edge of the sword and leaving none remaining and doing to the king as he had done to the king of Jericho, when we recognize that that he is the Lord, that, that could be kind of scary for us. This is the Lord making war. That's not often the way we think of the Lord. Why is this important for us to, to realize that it is the Lord making war against these various cities? Well, I think it's maybe first important because this is what the Lord is actually called. Like, for example, at the, I believe it's at the end of Deuteronomy, might be in Exodus, where Moses refers to the Lord as the Lord, he is a man of war, right? That's it's actually a title that's given to him. Uh, you also have this, I know a lot of pastors like to bring this up but it it is pretty cool that when you talk about like the lord of hosts that 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 word sebeot is the word for army so he's the lord of the armies when you look in the prophets the lord is depicted on a number of occasions as wearing armor and uh you know having a bow or a spear or uh, a sword and like he's he's this great warrior um, so this is how he depicts himself in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. And that's that can be very frightening, uh, but it depends on which side of the Lord you're on. Are you, are you on the side of the tip of his sword or are you behind him? That, that's kind of the question. And, and you see the, the example of this. So Joshua and Israel are standing behind the Lord. And all these other Canaanite uh, cities are standing at the tip of his sword. And that that's not going to go well for you if you're at the tip of his sword. And the Lord, so the Lord exhorts us that he would have us be behind him instead of in front of him. Uh, and you get uh, that 
you know, that this, this great phrase, um, that the Lord will fight for you, you need only to remain silent, right? So that the, the Lord's the one doing this. And ultimately, the, the big thing that comes out of this is who exactly is the Lord fighting against? You've got like, literally here, all the Canaanites, but what are they ultimately a stand in for? And this is why Ephesians is, I think, a pretty important text in this where uh, St. Paul reminds us that we are not against flesh and blood. So, you know, the, the Israelites are not against the Canaanites simply for being Canaanites, uh, nor are we against any particular people. Um, rather, we are against the spiritual forces of this present evil age that stand behind all of that. And just like the Lord uses means in order to accomplish his will, the devil also uses means to accomplish his will. He uses uh, men and the world and our own sinfulness to accomplish um, his his desire of destroying what the Lord has built up. And so the Lord fights against that. And here on earth, he fights against that through example, for example, through Joshua and Israel and the armies going and conquering these Canaanite regions. But in himself, he fights against that in the person of Jesus at the cross so that he goes and he fights against the, the true enemies of sin, death, and the devil in order to conquer them in our place, that we would be victorious. Just as the people of Israel here are victorious, we're also victorious in him. And, and I think that that's, uh, that's a really wonderful thing that's going on here with the Lord being this warrior, and that that's actually a comforting thing for us because he's fighting on our side, right? Uh, and this is, if you pay attention to the text for a mighty fortress that Luther brings out, it, it is this sort of idea. The Lord is the one who is a man of war fighting for us. Um, and who's going to beat God, right? I mean, that that's the pretty great thing about this. And that, that's what you end up getting, like, especially I think with how quickly all of these cities are listed here and how they just all fall over, right? It's this kind of rhetorical flourish. It's like, yeah, I mean, when the Lord's the one doing the fighting, he's he's going to win, right? Mm. Right. And so that that's where, you know, a text like this, where it's perhaps not as exciting as what you read in the fall of Jericho or when the, the sun stood still earlier in chapter 10, you don't get the details of battle as, as maybe you, you want to read and you would enjoy reading. Hearing one city after another fall just like that is a good reminder that it's, this book is not about learning military strategy for taking a, a land. Rather, it's about learning to trust in the Lord whose word never fails. His promises never fall. They always are fulfilled. And so hearing one city after another fall is a good reminder that no matter what enemies, no matter how many enemies stand in the Lord's way, even the most powerful ones, sin, death, and the devil, the Lord will fight and he will conquer. We're going to keep looking at this conquest of Southern Canaan and Joshua 10 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Sean Kilgo this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you?
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 24th. We're studying Joshua chapter 10, verses 28 to 43 with Pastor Sean Kilgo. He serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, prior to the break, we were talking about how in the text, it says things like, he struck it, he left none remaining. And we made the point that both grammatically and theologically, that he is sometimes the Lord, sometimes it's Joshua. It's really both, that the Lord is doing this work through his servant Joshua. And we talked about some specifics within the text, but it strikes me that that this way of speaking, that the Lord is at work through his people, is very similar to the way we talk about vocation as Lutherans, the way that scriptures talk about our vocation, the things that we do according to God's command. This is God working through us. How does, how does a text like this and point us to vocation? Talk about that doctrine of vocation more generally. Yeah, so in, in case any of the, the listeners maybe are not familiar with that term, vocation is just the, the term that means calling where, where the Lord has called you in this life. And so, for example, we have in the table of duties, you've got 13 things that are there. So, you know, the Lord can call you as like a husband or wife, parent or child. Um, he can call you as a worker, employer, a citizen, government, all these sorts of things. And call you as, these are all uh, variants of the neighbor and call you as a friend here you know the lord has called joshua to be the leader of israel and he's called israel and uh, various people in it uh, as soldiers right so soldiers of vocation for example um and one of the things that we always want to do when we're dealing with vocation is we want to look at what has the lord said about this particular vocation or at least if, if this particular vocation is not in the scriptures, where does this vocation fall in the commandments? And therefore, how am I to act in uh, in relation to my neighbor according to this vocation? So th- there's this really important question that Luther teaches us to ask in the small catechism under confession absolution. And in that context, it's what sins should we confess uh, and it's consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. But that is a that is a question to ask more broadly about our vocation. And so this this describes like if we ask the question, what should I do today? Well consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. So are you a husband, wife, father, mother, worker, whatever it might be. And now you look at, okay, here's my vocations. And here's how those vocations 
interact with my neighbor through the commandments. And, and that's going to shape both my actions and my love towards them. And it's entirely shaped by what the Lord has commanded for those vocations. So I'm, I, I don't get to just come on, come along and make up whatever I want regarding what I should do as a husband or father, for example, or, you know, as a pastor, we're given very specific commands on what we are to do and not to do. And then the things that are in between there that are, uh, that don't have details, we're, we're kind of free to, to do or not do in the context of the vocation. Uh, Luther, in like in the, in this context, Luther writes this this pretty important little track called um, uh, "Whether Soldiers Too Can Be Saved," and there's there's this concern in the Middle Ages, especially about the the soldier, in this case the knight, on whether or not this vocation, which has as its duty the killing of other people, whether that vocation is in the state of perpetually breaking the fifth commandment and therefore should be barred from the sacrament of the altar. Um, and there is the question of like, are, you know, are you even saved if you serve as a, as a knight or a soldier? And Luther takes this up and he makes a very good, very good point that as long as the soldier is acting according to his vocation of soldier, which has the authority to kill found in the fourth commandment, not in the fifth, then they're, they're fine. But as soon as you start using that, that sword outside of that vocation of soldier, then it's not okay. And this is, this is kind of part of what you're seeing back in Joshua seven is now they're not acting according to the vocation that God has given them. They're, they're going beyond what the Lord has told them. And so this is this very important thing that with vocation, we want to stay, we want to stay in our lane to use that, that terminology and do what the Lord has given us to do in that vocation. And when we do that, we can not only be content, but we can live with a good conscience hmm. because like, for example, you, you can think, especially as like a soldier, it'd be very easy uh, like for the people of Israel or soldiers in general, and, and you see this all the time, uh, to have a a troubled conscience about what they've done. You know, is is God going to forgive me for this? Well, you can you can serve with a good conscience, knowing that the Lord is not displeased with you for fulfilling your duty as a soldier, even if that is meant having to kill somebody. Um, because the Lord has actually commanded this in the fourth commandment under the authority of the state to have the sword for this, for the purpose of punishing evil and promoting good. So uh, instead of having a, a troubled conscience, you can actually serve with a good conscience. And that also helps in, in serving faithfully there. But I mean, also in, in any vocation that you're in and even outside of soldier. Hmm. Yeah, the, the matter of having a good conscience in vocation, I think, is very helpful. And one of the things that I've always found very comforting about the doctrine of vocation personally, to know that these very simple things that God has given me to do as a husband or as a father 
or as a son or as a pastor, these, these very, you know, just normal activities. So as a pastor, I, I pray for the congregation under my care, or as a father, I, I raise my children in the faith. As a, a husband, I, I love my wife as Christ loved the church. These, these very simple things that, you know, day to day don't seem all that impressive and, and maybe look like, gosh, he, he spends all his time, you know, he spends his time praying at church. What What's that? It doesn't look all that important. And yet, because these these acts have God's command, then I can in good conscience do them, knowing that that God is is counting them as as good works, not because of me, but because of his word. And that really does give me a good conscience and and sets me free to do those things that God has given me to do and ultimately serve my neighbor far better than anything I could have ever come up with my on my own. Right. And it and it lets you serve with joy too. Right. So so I can there's a there's a great temptation, I think. And, and I know I struggle with this as well. I, th- I think everybody does in having these seemingly mundane tasks set before us. And we're, we're always kind of striving to do something that, that we think is more important, right? Um, it seems like there, there should be something more important for me to do with my time than, you know, fill in the blank thing. But if this is something that the Lord has given me to do according to my vocation, it's not mundane. It it's not unimportant. In fact, it's immensely important. Um because you're you're serving your neighbor, whoever that is in that context, as the Lord desires you to, and that they've given you your neighbor and that good work. Both of them are good gifts. And so we can receive those then as good gifts both the work and the neighbor and uh, and stand in that vocation with joy. So not only with a good conscience, but also with joy. And I think that's a, another important aspect here. Uh, not that like, so I don't, I don't, I think we want to be a little bit careful in, in the context of, of Joshua here that, you know, the, the people of Israel are going out and they're, they're just, you know, overjoyed to be going and doing all this. They're, they're probably rightfully saddened that, you know, that this is a product of the fall and that it's come to this. Uh, but at the same time, they, they can, they can do it with a good conscience at the bare minimum, knowing that they're not going to be, um, you know, they're not going to be thrown under the bus by the Lord later on for doing what he's commanded them to do. Yeah. And no, I, I think that was a helpful distinction that the joy that we have in our vocations, certainly. And I think that was well said, but also to recognize that, yeah, what, what is happening here, that there's not the joy in the sense that they're just really happy to be doing this, but there is that good conscience, that, that comfort that comes from knowing that God's command is what is at work here and not just the whim of Joshua or the people of Israel. So I, that was a very helpful comment, Pastor Kogel. Uh, looking into the, the text again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's not a ton of details concerning the battle, but it did strike me that in two cases, in the city of Lachish and then again in the city of Eglon, the text does remind us that the people of Israel laid siege to these cities. And when I think of siege warfare, I usually think of something that's very prolonged. It involves, you know, surrounding the city, 
usually cutting off water, food supplies as much as you can, and essentially starving the city out until they surrender. So it's often a very lengthy process. It's, it's pretty brutal. What happens to the city of Jerusalem uh, when Babylon comes and lays siege to it in the 500s BC, some of the effects that are described, for example, in Lamentations and in Jeremiah, it was really awful, and it, it lasted a very long time. However, in Joshua 10, the city of Lachish, they laid laid siege to it and capture it on the second day. And then Eglon, they laid siege to it and they capture it on that day. That's not your typical siege warfare. And again, even in a, a section where the text just goes from one city to the next, it does strike me that when you do get those glimpses of the battle. It, it's once again, not the way that we would have drawn it up, but it goes according to the Lord's word and will. Yeah. So the, these, this is part of this like rapid succession, but you also see that there's just, when the Lord decides that he's going to accomplish something, he's going to accomplish it. And sometimes he makes the decision and this is part of his hidden will that he's going to take a while in order to accomplish it. So like, for example, the, the Israelites meandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Did it have to take 40 years for them to get to the, uh, to the promised land? No, but in the Lord's wisdom, he decided to make it take 40 years. So if it's going to take, if the Lord decides that that's how long it's going to take. In this case, if the Lord decides that he's going to send the army of Israel to, um, Lachish or Gezer, um, and that they're going to, uh, lay siege to the cities and, uh, and topple them in a day or two days, well, then that's what's going to happen. Um, it is kind of interesting when, when you look through this, just kind of how it goes. So, so Lakish actually ends up being a really important kind of fortified city. Um, e- even, uh, I, I believe it's when Babylon is coming through and conquering the areas that Lakish, I, th- I think is the last one to fall. Um, it, it seems like it's it's a very very well fortified area. So the fact that it takes two days instead of one kind of has this indication that that yes, it's it's very well protected. Um, but it, it's it's interesting because if you, if you look at the path, like you just track out the path, uh, Gazer is um, kind of not in the normal path of these things, and it's almost as though. Um, uh, because the because Horam comes down in order to help Lakish, uh, basically interfering with what the Lord is is doing. That therefore he's he's punished by the people of Israel being sent up to to Gezer and capturing that city as well, and then coming back down and going through back through Lakish into Eglon and Habron and Debir. So. Um, so it's kind of interesting when you just track that out, how that how that works. And there's almost like this little, it, it if you blink, you miss it in the text, and you kind of need a map to see what's going on. But um, it, yeah, in, in both instances, uh, the Lord just says, okay, well, this this one's going down, so go and go and conquer it, and it it just happens um, in the same way that when the Lord creates everything, He just speaks in it. And it happens when the Lord decides to to heal people in the Gospels. He speaks, and it happens when He raises people from the dead. He speaks, and it happens. So the Lord declares to Israel to go and lay siege to these cities, and 
that they will be victorious. And as he's spoken, so it happens. Now, the other thing that shows up in each part of this section, and in one way or another, is this matter of devoting things to destruction or leaving none remaining in it. And we, we've talked about already the Lord winning the victory over his enemies and why that is important and even a comfort for us as, as Christians and, and why, you know, why the fact that the Lord is the man of war, as Moses calls him in Exodus 15, why that too is important. But even, even then, this matter of devoting things to destruction, every person leaving none remaining, I think still strikes us as, boy, that, that just, that doesn't seem quite right. Why, why is this too an important part of the Lord being a man of war and winning these victories that he, he calls his people to devote things to destruction and even leave none remaining in these cities, including the the kings. Yeah, I, th- I think there's actually a lot more going on with this than we maybe think at first glance. Part of it is just our assumption that any group or person should be exempt from the fullness of the Lord's wrath. I mean, we we all, I mean, this is the thing we need to understand is that we all deserve in our sin to be destroyed. Um, all of us deserve this. And um, it's only through the Lord's mercy and through the, the death of Jesus that we are spared the, the same sort of fate. And so I think we need to start by coming at this with the, with the right set of assumptions, uh, un- understanding who we are in relation to the Lord in our sin and who we are in relation to the Lord in, in Christ. The other thing like you were kind of alluding to is when the Lord fights against his enemies, um, he, he does it like he does everything. He, um, he does that thing perfectly and completely. And that's also very important for us understanding that all these things are ultimately pointing us to Christ and his battle particularly with the devil, that that Jesus is going to completely destroy the devil in the same way that he completely destroys these cities. Um, and, th- and we need that. We, we need the, uh, the assurance that uh, the, the devil isn't just like mostly defeated, but maybe he somehow escapes, right? You, you get this in movies all the time where... Um, you know, whether it's the good guy or the bad guy, they're, they're almost beat and the person just kind of leaves them for dead. And then something miraculous happens and they manage to escape and they come back and they get their revenge or whatever. Right. And so that, that's what we, we don't want to have happen. And so the Lord here just over and over, not, not just here, but in the, uh, in all these narratives where this is happening, he's showing that when, when he goes to war against something, he will, completely and thoroughly destroy that thing that is standing against his people and his word and against Christ. Um, and ultimately at the end of the day, the thing that's standing behind all of that is the devil. He's, he's the one who is his fighting against all of creation and all of the Lord's promises and all that the Lord has built up. Uh, he wants to destroy everything. And so the devil, um, is the great enemy and Jesus is the one who will come and completely destroy him um, for our sake. But even in the context of Joshua 10, those 
various cities that are mentioned and the the peoples that are completely destroyed, devoted to destruction, the role of the devil, I think, is an important thing to remember. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Lord is is speaking to his people and how they will fall away into idolatry. And and the way that he, he speaks is that they will worship uh, gods who are really demons, that, that the gods that they will worship who are idols, what's standing behind them are demons. And St. Paul picks up this same theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The way Moses says it in Deuteronomy 32 is they, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. So the idolatry that's happening in Canaan has the devil standing behind it. And that, that too, I think, is an important thing, not only for the, the larger picture that, that what we see here foreshadows the victory that Christ wins completely over Satan, but even the Lord just right here and now in Joshua chapter 10 in the 1400s BC, that he is right then and there protecting his people from the attacks of demons, from the idolatry that's rampant in Canaan. He wants that wiped out so that that won't pose a threat for his people right then and there. So it's not only this, you know, the foreshadowing of what Christ will do in the greater sense, but it's it's a protection from sin and Satan right then and there in Joshua chapter 10. Right. And, and you see this also built into the commands to the people of Israel not to take for themselves wives from these places that they're conquering. Because this is something that the Israel's kind of constantly tempted to do is they'll, they'll come in and they'll, they'll, they'll conquer an area and they're commanded to just give the entire area, all the people to devote it to destruction. Um, and they'll, they'll not do that entirely. They'll take some lives. And then what ends up happening, it seems every time, at least all the times that I can recall that that brings in idolatry and false worship and the devil himself through those things into the very midst of the people of Israel and it corrupts them from the inside out. And then the Lord has to come in and basically uh, remove those people out of the people of Israel out of Israel and all those who have become infected by this. And, and the Lord understands what's going to go on there much better than we do. And it, and it goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning that, you know, we, we really ought to simply listen to what the Lord commands us to do, whether we necessarily understand the whys behind it, understanding that his wisdom is greater than our wisdom. And that even though I mean, this is the, the point of St. Paul with the gospel, right? That the gospel seems like foolishness uh, to, to the unbeliever. And, and it's, you know, it's the furthest thing from foolishness. The gospel is not foolishness. It is the most wonderful thing in creation. Um, and so we do well to just listen to what the Lord says, believing and trusting that he does know what he's doing and he understands these things better than we do. And that he is always working for our good. He, he's never working to uh, to bring uh, any sort of ill to us. He's he's always working to ultimately bring us into the the resurrection of everlasting life. And he's going to do what is necessary to accomplish that. Hmm. Pastor Coco, we've got about four minutes here on the text. As as we've said throughout, we a lot of summary here, one city after another that the Lord gives to his people. We're talking about southern Canaan as the text ends, Joshua returns to his camp at Gilgal, so that in the next chapter, as we will see, we get more conquest of now northern Canaan. So the Lord is is busy, he's active, fulfilling his promise, giving the promised land to his people. 
wiping out those threats that remain for his people that would lead them into destruction, whether earthly or eternally. As you look at the text, are there anything? Is there anything we missed? I think we've we've covered quite a bit of it. Is there anything that we've missed? And and as we wrap up this morning, help us again to see Christ in this conquest of Southern Canaan. So I think maybe the the one thing we we didn't mention it, um, but it's and and we don't want to I think uh, get too symbolic on any of this stuff. I think one of the things we always want to make sure that we let stand is that these are actually real historic events. Um, the, the Lord is not making up like fanciful tales for us in order to get across a point. These aren't parables or anything like that. These actually happen. And and there are broader implications of the things and broader teachings that come out of them, which is what we've been talking about. Um, but at the same time, there are there is symbolism that does occur throughout the scriptures. And I think one of those that we might see here is that you've got uh, seven cities that are listed and kind of right in the middle, you've got the one king that's listed. Um, and it's, I, I think one of the nice things to, to see in this is this, this number seven in the scriptures gets used fairly often as the, uh, the number for um, completeness or perfection. And so the, the Lord's victory over the enemy of God, of his people uh, is complete. And that includes, um, you know, what, what St. Paul calls the prince of the power of the, uh, of the air, um, uh, or what, uh, uh, Daniel referred to as the prince of Persia, right? That, that, that the devil gets referred to as this, um, kind of Lord sort of person. He has this, this kind of Royal title, uh, periodically. And so, so here, I think you can see that in the fact that you've got a king that shows up right in the middle of this, uh, that it's it's not a good king. It's a, it's, it's a false king. It's not the king of kings. Um, the king of kings, Jesus, is going to win, and his victory is going to be uh, complete and perfect. And the Lord gives that victory to us. This is this great, great promise um, that in Christ we are, in fact, more than victors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. And, and therefore, uh, nothing in creation is able to separate us. Um, and you, you see in here, you know, creation trying to fight against the Lord and, and the people of God, and, and it loses. And for us, uh, that is particularly um, death itself tries to fight against us, and, it, and it's going to lose. It already has lost in Christ, and we are promised that, that that victory, even over death, the thing that seems to be completely unbeatable, uh, is, is also going to be destroyed for us on the last day. In the same way, all of these these cities, they just get riddled off as though they're nothing in, in this text. Uh, at the end of the day, when, when our Lord returns, death is the same way. It, it's as nothing. And it's the one of my favorite hymn stanzas. Uh, says this, um, that we will go the Lord to meet treading death beneath our feet. Uh, that, that's, that's what's sitting in the background of all of this, that Jesus is the victor. He is the conqueror over all that fights against us. And in him, we are already victorious and we will have that victory given to us in its fullness on the last day. 
Pastor Sean Kelgo is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas, helping us today with Joshua 10, verses 28 to 43. Pastor Kelgo, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, it's great to be here. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>